Welcome to COG, where we discuss current issues in women's health. This week on Conversations in Obstetrics and Gynaecology, we talk persistent pelvic pain with Dr. Sosa Nassani, a minimally invasive surgeon and pelvic pain specialist from the University of Michigan. Then we'll examine three offerings from the recent Literature and Journal Club. My name is Rachel Nugent. I'm an ONG staff specialist at the Sunshine Coast University Hospital in Queensland. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Ted Weaver. Hello, Ted. Hi, Rachel. How are you? Hello to our listeners. And it's interesting that we're talking about a particular bait noir of mine, chronic pelvic pain. Because certainly over the years, I think this is something that, that we've managed poorly. Um, there's an increasing literature that, that we should manage this sort of pain uh, in an interdisciplinary setting. And I really don't think that there are many units, certainly in Australia, that have really embraced that concept. And I think to the um, uh, detriment of our patients. And it's interesting, when I was last on call as a consultant, we had a 21-year-old woman who was in a hospital who had had something like 20 presentations to the emergency department in the, in the preceding eight months because of a chronic pelvic pain problem. And no one had really taken ownership of this patient and no one had had a, a discernible management plan that was coherent and reasonable. And it struck me that we should be discussing this with our listeners and it struck me that we should be doing a lot better for this group of patients than we currently are doing. Yeah, look, our listeners are struck by those same things. I'm really pleased that a couple of ONGs have gotten in touch with us to ask us to discuss this topic. So thanks to Marilla Druitt from Geelong and Dr Georgia Heathcote, who's a trainee in Cairns, who both got in touch and requested that we discuss this topic. I think we've really underdone pelvic pain in gynaecology for a long time, and it seems to always come down to this it's endometriosis or it's not. Exactly. And, and that was further reinforced for me by the health minister announcing funding for chronic pelvic pain and really just put up endo- and it, it was the um, endometriosis association group that he was speaking at with the implication clearly there that endometriosis was the root cause of all chronic pelvic pain when we know that it's not. And I was at a recent annual scientific meeting in New Zealand, run by the New Zealand College, and there was an excellent presentation, I thought, from Kate Joseph, who's a um, trainee down in Dunedin, who'd been working with Professor Wayne Gillett down there. And Wayne has been an advocate over the years for the better investigation, management and treatment of women with chronic pelvic pain. I thought it was interesting that they highlighted this for a full session at their meeting, which is something that we at Australian meetings don't often do. So I think it's high time we talked about it. Yeah, so look, let's uh, get into the discussion with Dr. Sorsen Asani. Today on COG, I'm talking to Dr. Sorsen Asani, who uh, is an Associate Professor and the Director of the Minimally Invasive Surgery and Chronic Pelvic Pain Service at the University of Michigan. (laughs) Dr. Asani is a specialist in the management of endometriosis and also pelvic pain, and I'm absolutely delighted to have her joining me on COG today. Thanks for joining us, Susie. Well, I'm so excited. I'm so happy that you find this topic interesting and that you're going to give us this opportunity for discussion to, I guess, exactly the opposite side of the world. Pelvic pain is responsible for 10% of outpatient visits, 40% of laparoscopies, 12% of hysterectomies and is an extremely prevalent disorder among women across the world. But yet we see people in clinic and we book them for a laparoscopy that the amount of pathology that we find in the pelvis is not really proportional to the amount of symptoms that they have. We do lots of operations for people who then have no visible pathology. Why is that? Well, as gynecologists, we are trained to evaluate and treat conditions that are related to the uterus, the ovaries, and the pelvic peritoneum, such as conditions like endometriosis, adenomyosis, uterine fibroids. Um, But when you actually back up and look at what are all the conditions that can cause chronic pelvic pain, those represent just a fraction of the conditions that cause chronic pelvic pain. And the pelvis, chronic pelvic pain is defined as any pain that lasts at least three to six months 
basically between the umbilicus and the the knees. And so it can be related to the reproductive organs, but it can also be related to the intestines. It can be related to the bowel. It can be related to musculoskeletal structures. It can be related to the nervous system, the, you know, peripheral and central nervous system. And so um, I think the reproductive organs are just the tip of the iceberg. They're very prevalent causes for chronic pelvic pain, but that's really the only thing that we're trained to evaluate and treat as gynecologists. And so if that's the only thing you're looking for, you're probably going to miss a lot of other conditions. So you talked quite extensively Mm -hmm. about, uh, you know, doing a a thorough Mm -hmm. history. What I was really interested in during the presentation was the discussion about examination. Mm -hmm. Can you just step through the kind of important aspects of an examination that we may not all be doing all the time when we're seeing patients? with pain right no absolutely I mean I think the first thing you think about is when I am get to the point that I'm ready to do a physical exam I have a fairly clear differential diagnosis of what I think may be happening based on the patient's symptoms and I don't mean to use this word in a negative fashion but I I try to I guess phenotype or have some preconceived ideas of what the exam might show and what specifically I'm looking for based on the pattern of symptoms. So in terms of the exam, I think the very first thing I look for is how is the patient sitting? There are some patients, like for example, that have vulvodynia or pudendal neuralgia. Their pain is significantly exacerbated by sitting. And those patients, I like some of the extreme ones, like you'll walk in, they won't sit down. They're just standing and they're like, it's too uncomfortable to sit. You know, spend most of my time standing. So that's sort of a red flag for me. The other patients that are sort of leaning on one buttocks or the other, and that is sort of a, another red flag for musculoskeletal neuropathic pain. You know, and then mood and affect certainly are important. In terms of the actual, what we would think of as a traditional physical exam, I always start with the back. And I don't mean to pretend to be an orthopedic surgeon or an orthopod or even a physical therapist, but what I explain to patients is I screen for these other conditions, and if I identify a potential musculoskeletal or neurologic component that I know where I need to send the patient, it might not be me that's treating them, but I'm going to look for all components. So I palpate the paraspinal processes. I palpate over the sacroiliac joints. Um, over the uh, coccyx or the tailbone. And if patients have focal pain that they say exacerbates the type of pain that they experience, then I think that is very informative. Then I have the patient lie back flat on the, or at least head raised a little bit, and I do very thorough abdominal exam. I mean, I look for, before I touch them, I look for prior incisions. I actually ask them before I touch them, can you outline all the areas that you experience pain? And so draw a circle around them, and then can you show me the one point or if there are any points that your pain is worse? Mm. And so then I generally start far away from those spots. I use one finger, and I just gently basically push inch by inch sort of across the abdominal wall and ask if every area is tender. And what I'm mostly looking for are two things. One of them is, you know, what's the pattern? Is the pattern focal in one little spot, or do they have diffuse pain that sort of crosses more than one quadrant, or can I even reproduce the pain? And of course, the obvious things like are there masses, are there hernias, mm. are there pain associated over a specific scar, is there or a mass? And then I also mm. look for what we call trigger points. So trigger points are sort of focal areas of muscle spasm, and sometimes you know there's thought that there might be inflammation. But usually, for a true trigger point, you feel a very focal knot. You know, in the abdominal wall musculoscar, so it's usually going to be in the rectus muscles. I usually find them on the very lateral borders of the rectus muscles. And so if there's a very focal area of pain and you palpate that and that reproduces your pain, that's something that you think about. Um, and the next thing we do is what's called a carnet sign. That, you mentioned that. Yes. And I did not know what that was. Yeah, so it's, it's spelled C-A-R-N-E-T-T-S. And so the idea is, is that you press on the area that the patient is tender and you have them flex their abdominal muscles. So usually I have them like lift their head and shoulders off the table, and that sort of forces flexion of the abdominal muscle. And the idea is, is that if the pain is in the muscle fascia layer of the abdominal wall, 
the contraction of the muscle causes increased pain. Mm -hmm. So that's a positive sign. If the pain is visceral in origin, it is thought to distract from that. Actually, in theory, patients report, oh, that actually makes my pain better. Um, A lot of times we actually say it makes no difference and it's sort of neutral and you don't really know what to do with the non-diagnostic, but that's sort of what we think about. So that points more to just myofascial pain and a trigger point is a subtype of myofascial pain where the pain is very focal, sort of in a hyper-contracted area of the muscle. And so those sometimes can actually benefit from injections. It's all chasing down what is the cause. It's like mapping it out, mapping it out. And then we do, and then we do the pelvic exam. And that involves a neurosensory exam mm-hmm. using a cotton tip swab mm-hmm. both sides. It's more, again, a screening test, you know, particularly, you know, in patients that have had prior surgery and patients that have had trauma, whether they're bike riders, horseback riders, I've seen it in gardeners, you know, that are always squatting. So mm-hmm. you sort of look for changes in their sensitivity and the different nerve distributions. And even if you don't exactly know the nerve distributions, I think the key thing is it symmetric? If it's both sides, it's pretty rare for it to be a focal neuropathy unless you happen to injure both nerves mm-hmm. on both sides. If it's in one specific area, then that you know probably aligns with a specific nerve distribution or if it's sort of everything hurts. I mean, in general, there are many different subtypes of vulvodynia that often um, sort of the symptoms often overlap with the symptoms of pudendal neuralgia. So it becomes a little bit confusing and there's not really very clear diagnostic criteria all of the time to distinguish them. But in general, patients should not feel pain or sensory changes with a Q-tip touch. So if there's something there going on, then even if you're not the right person to treat, that's sort of a potential sign that this is not like a uterine problem. This is a neuropathic pain problem. Yeah. You've done a lot of work in centralized sensitization, Mm -hmm. which is a fascinating area Mm -hmm. of science, trying to explain why some women develop pelvic pain, uh, chronic pelvic pain, Mm -hmm. and others don't. Are you able to just step us through some of that work you've done about the brain changes? Sure. So I think, uh, you know, one of the things that I've been most lucky to do is work with chronic pain researchers that study other chronic pain conditions. And so my training is in clinical obstetrics and gynecology, and I did extra surgical training in minimally invasive surgery and endometriosis and pain. And I think one of the biggest enigmas that we see in that patient population in general that I think every gynecologist knows is is that there's very little correlation between how much endometriosis a woman has and how much pain she experiences, and that even when you treat the endometriosis, and you know there can definitely be arguments and points of that are vague of like, well, did you adequately treat the endo? But in general, there are many patients that have very aggressive treatment for their endometriosis and still don't get better. And so when I came to the University of Michigan, I got the opportunity to work with some chronic pain researchers that were working in fibromyalgia and other chronic pain conditions. And what I learned about, which I never learned about in my obstetrics and gynecology training, is, is that there can be a lot of input that pelvic organs push in through the spinal cord into the brain that can activate the pain pathways, but the brain has a profound ability to either turn up the volume on the signal or turn down the volume. And the process or the concept of central sensitization is any condition, any chronic pain condition in which the central nervous system is dysfunctional such that the volume is turned up. And so where exactly is that problem occurring might be variable from person to person, and we don't entirely understand it. But there's a very distinct pattern of patients in almost every single chronic pain condition in which the dysregulated pain regulatory areas contribute to the sensation of chronic pain. And it's not just a pain syndrome, but it's a sensory dysfunction syndrome. So it's not just pain, but these patients often actually report more sensitivity to other sensory stimuli like light and sound. And these patients also report a lot of other associated somatic symptoms, which are thought to also arise from those same regulatory regions in the brain. So the patients are often more fatigued. They have um, memory difficulties. In the world of fibromyalgia, it's often called fibrofog. They just don't have the same memory that they used to. Patients often report dysfunctional sleep, like they have a difficult time falling asleep, staying asleep. They wake up feeling unrefreshed. And so this sort of 
combination of both widespread pain as well as somatic symptoms are part of the characteristics of patients with these centralized pain conditions. And so we've begun to identify that there is definitely a subset of women with chronic pelvic pain, both with and without endometriosis, that demonstrate changes in their pain sensitivity as well as these brain anatomy and function that are very similar to the patterns that we see in fibromyalgia and other pain conditions. Not everybody, but it's certainly a proportion of women. And I guess the really exciting Mm -hmm. thing about that is that then if there's a mechanism that we can identify, Mm -hmm. then hopefully what will flow from that is treatments that will help these women. Absolutely. And for some, and I think one of the interesting things is, is we really don't know, is this a consequence of untreated endometriosis or is this something that's happening parallel and independent of the endometriosis because there's no scientific reason that somebody couldn't develop that irrespective of what's happening with the with the pelvis because there are plenty of people that get that without any peripheral pathology. And there's probably subgroups of all in that maybe in some women they get these central changes and you treat their endo and then those central changes actually reverse and go back to normal. But then there are other women that, you know, the central processes are entirely independent of what's happening in the pelvis. And no matter what you do, in the pelvis, whether it's medical treatment, excisional surgery, hysterectomy, those central changes are independent. And we don't know how to distinguish those patient groups yet. Another really important aspect of some of the work you're doing is recognizing that timing does matter Mm -hmm. in the management of pain and even chronic pain for people. You've actually got some Really yeah. good data to support yeah. that. Well, yeah, that was actually Katie Vincent, who's a obstetrician gynecologist in Oxford, UK, that had done that work and looked at the degree of brain changes relative to the duration of symptoms someone had with surgically proven endometriosis and found a very linear correlation between the longer somebody had had symptoms prior to treatment, the worse those brain changes were. At this point, we don't know yet if those are reversible, but I think knowing that in parallel with probably one of the biggest problems with the care of patients with endometriosis is that there's an average delay of anywhere between 7 and 10 years from the time of onset of symptoms to the time of diagnosis. Like We potentially are missing a tremendous opportunity to catch these women before those things happen. Yeah, So, and I guess that... <clears throat> really rams home for me mm-hmm. how important it is to mm-hmm. get it right yes to to find these women yes. and uh treat them yep. and get their treatment right early yes because there seems to be evidence that the longer yes. you leave a problem the the worse and more entrenched it's likely to be absolutely and yeah more refractory to treatment absolutely yeah what kind of tools do you use to recognize centralized pain so a lot of the tools that we use in our research we're not necessarily using clinically at this point. Um, I mean, we actually do have them in our patient packets, um, but I, I generally think it's really just the pattern. I mean, I actually think one of the most useful items in our new patient packets, like the questionnaires that we give, is a body map. We just have a body map, the front and the back. We ask patients to color in all the areas where they experience bothersome pain in the past month. And I think the other, you know, we have symptom severity scores for just those those somatic symptoms that we had talked about, things like fatigue, like unrefreshed sleep. Those seem to be very helpful. And then, you know, the history as well as sort of a systematic review of systems that looks for symptoms that point to like recurrent headaches, TMJ, chronic back pain, chronic abdominal pain, urinary symptoms like urgency and frequency and all of these things seem to coexist with each other. Not necessarily, but but those are the types of patterns that we look for. That's a fairly simple thing that yeah. we can add to our clinical Absolutely. regimen yeah. to get I'm, a patient to actually yeah. just draw on a, on a body map. Absolutely. If I had to pick one thing, it would be a body map. Because I think we do get honed in on... On the pelvis. And trying to work out, is this something I can help you with or not? Right. And actually, there's lots of things that we can help with yes. that aren't the genital Absolutely. Tract. And I think the thing is, is I think it can become overwhelming for gynecologists. And I don't... And it's not realistic to think that every gynecologist is going to be a pain expert. But I think if you're thinking about those things and at least acknowledging to the patient that this might be playing a role in your symptoms and playing a role in how well you respond to treatments and recover from treatments, it's still 
our job as gynecologists to treat the pelvic pathology, um, but this additional information sort of helps us and the patient understand what's going on as a whole person, and if we're not the right person to treat that, then at least we get them to that right family doctor or specialist that is the right person to treat it. How do you address patients' expectations that they're coming to you, you're the pain specialist, and you're going to cure their pain? Well, I think, I mean, it's all about that first visit. We have this complex system that might not necessarily work for a general physician where, you know, they fill out their questionnaire before they come to the visit. So they sort of have a sense of the type of approach. We ask them in our questionnaire, what are the type of treatments that you're willing to consider? And we go through, we have a little checkbox for every single treatment, physical therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, injections. And then we also actually ask them a question that says, what do you think is going to help your pain? And some patients like hysterectomy or some people like, I don't know, anything that helps. And so you kind of get a sense, I think, ahead of time, sort of what space that person is in. And then, you know, we tell the patients from the beginning, we really appreciate you filling out this packet. It's been very helpful. We're going to go through your history, a physical exam, and then, you know, my job is really to tell you all the different things that I think can be contributing to your pain and the types of treatments that we recommend for each given aspect. And it's a process. You've, you know, often been living with this condition for 10 years. I'm not going to cure you tomorrow. But if you're willing to go through this process, then, you know, I think the vast majority of patients report some improvement. And so at the end of the visit and the exam, I have the patients get dressed. I bring in the family, whoever's there, and we actually do an itemized list. We give them a sort of a little overview about pain physiology, and then we say, these are the things that I think are relevant to you as you know, an individual. These are the peripheral problems. These are the central problems. These are the behavioral things. And we're going to start by doing X, Y, and Z. We're not going to do every single thing right now because we want to know what's working, what's not working, what's giving you side effects, and we're just going to go through the process. So let's talk about treatment a little bit then because assuming you've made a reasonable diagnosis about Mm. what the contributors are, there are a number of options for treatment. So usually we use hormonal suppression Mm -hmm. in the management of endometriosis, Mm -hmm. but you mentioned that cyclical pain Mm -hmm. in women who don't have Mm -hmm. proven endometriosis Mm -hmm. can also be effective. Mm -hmm. Suppression of cyclical pain. Absolutely. So, I mean, we know, like, there are studies to show that in patients with irritable bowel syndrome, they're often their symptoms get worse shortly before and during their menses. Um, and we see that also in patients with vulvodynia. We see that in patients with painful bladder syndrome. Um, and so in general, in any woman that has heavy periods, painful periods, or exacerbation of their pain with their periods, I almost always tell patients, unless they're actively trying to become pregnant, the very first step is, you know, suppression of your menses. And it almost doesn't matter what's causing it. As long as we can get you to a point of amenorrhea without bothersome breakthrough bleeding, that's our goal. It might not cure your pain, but then we can sort of layer treatments on after that. But regardless of the underlying etiology, because it could be fibroids, it could be adenomyosis, or it could be totally normal pelvis. And those are all the things that, you know, we're thinking about. So hormonal suppression is something that we're all familiar with yeah the other really interesting uh, aspects that you talked about was options for analgesia and Mm. i think the most interesting aspect of that for me was the revelation that opioid analgesia Mm. is not actually effective in this group in general i think in patients with chronic non-cancer pain the risks of opioid analgesia clearly outweigh the benefits so there are all and this is a very hotly debated topic in the United States. We have a huge opioid epidemic with more people dying of opioid overdose in the United States than die of car accidents. And I don't know the global data on that, but the data is pretty clear that it's beginning to come out in many other chronic pain conditions that people aren't functioning better on long-term opioids. They're not reporting less pain. On average, they're not reporting less pain. They're not improving better quality of life. They're not improving function. And so it's hard to make sweeping generalizations about every single patient and there is yeah there'll always be people who respond yes and Um. there is a vocal contingency of you know don't take away this is how i get by and so the decision needs to be made on an individual basis but i I think there's tremendous amount of consensus 
at least currently, that do not have new starts on opioids, except for like short-term acute post-surgical pain, because in general, it doesn't help people function or feel better. And so what alternatives then do people Mm -hmm. have to use Mm -hmm. uh, to manage? What are good alternatives Mm -hmm. that are useful for patients? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the vast majority of patients that by the time they get to doctors, they have already tried Tylenol, they've already tried NSAIDs, but I think we can sometimes educate patients about more scheduled dosing. Um, But really, in terms of pharmacologic therapies, there are many medications that have some analgesic benefit by sort of down-regulating the central nervous system. We don't know entirely how they work, but medications like some anti-seizure medicines like gabapentin and pregabalin have clear analgesic benefit in patients with centralized pain. There are very few studies done specifically in chronic pelvic pain, so much of what we do is just an extrapolation from other clinical paradigms, as well as uh, many medications that are initially approved as antidepressants also have analgesic benefit. So things like um, selective serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, um, as well as some antidepressants like the tricyclic antidepressants actually have really good analgesic benefit. And many of those medicines, you know, are dosed at um, doses that are far less than what you need to treat depression and anxiety, especially like the TCAs. So those are benefit. Those are options, and there are a lot of non-pharmacologic options. Yeah. For so pain. what what's the what are the most useful things for non-pharmacological? Well, I think that the vast majority of the evidence supports three things. First is education. Number two is cognitive behavioral therapy, and number three is exercise. There are other things like trigger point injections and blocks and acupressure, acupuncture are actually beginning to have increased traction in the literature with its analgesic benefits. It is very low risk other than cost associated with it. And so those are all things that we recommend. I was interested to hear a website that is a free website Mm -hmm. that is useful for a patient-initiated and run Mm -hmm. CBT program. Would you mind just mentioning that? Yeah, so FibroGuide, like based on fibromyalgia, so F-I-B-R-O, guide, dot com. It was actually developed by my mentors, Dr. Uh, David Williams and Daniel Claw, who I work with extensively at the University of Michigan Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research Center, um, developed this online self-guided um, cognitive behavioral therapy. There are, I think, 10 modules online that patients can go through. It's designed specifically for fibromyalgia, and there have been actually several modifications to it. I think there's one now developed for low back pain and a couple other conditions. There isn't a specific one yet for pelvic pain, but the idea basically is that for a lot of these chronic pain conditions, there are a lot of common things that you can do despite whatever the pain condition is that can be very helpful. So things like um, online CBT for sleep disturbance, uh, for fatigue symptoms, for pacing yourself when you know so that you don't overdo yourself when you're feeling well and then pay the price the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are ten different modules. There's homework in each module. There's ways that patients can sort of follow them through, and it's been tested in a large randomized controlled trial and shown to compared to usual care be associated with decreased pain scores as well as improved function. Sounds really exciting. I want to check it out. You should totally check it out. (laughs) (laughs) My collaborators, I'm not part of their study, just got funded for a new grant to do a randomized controlled trial, sort of enhancing this particular online CBT and adding some resilience and positive affect uh, training programs to see if that gets even, you know, gets patients even better. Yeah, watch this space. I know. It's very exciting. And it's actually, I mean, in countries, I think, like the United States, like, Australia, where there's a lot of care in the big cities, but very little access, you know, in the communities where there are very few doctors. Mm. I mean, part of the problem that we need to face is that, you know, patients have chronic pain and chronic disease, irregardless of their demographic and where they live. And, and some, you know, it's just not necessarily practical for these patients to get you know, to drive two hours to get to a physical therapist or to get to a pain psychologist and whatever we can do to bring the treatments to home where it's where it's actually accessible and um, practical for them to do it is going to be far more effective than and far cheaper than doing it, mm-hmm. you know, in a specialized center. 
and um, studies definitely support. There, this is not the only um, online CBT program that's been tested. It's just that it's freely available for anybody to go. Yeah, and so yeah. that brings me to my next question. Ideally, who do you have in your team in a mm-hmm. centre that specialises in this? Mm-hmm. Um, and for other institutions looking to set up a pelvic pain mm-hmm. service, mm-hmm. what's the bare bones that, right. that you think you would need? Right. I mean, I think we kind of function on a bare bones model (laughs) and really like want to try to expand to other models. Um, And there's actually a recently published paper by Catherine Allaire from British Columbia in Vancouver that has shown that uh, when patients enter this multidisciplinary, multimodal um, treatment model that has gynecologists, they have social workers that do a lot of the pain education and pain psychology. They have a physiotherapist and very clear and actually a very detailed education program. And patients that entered this model after one year had decreased pain, increased quality of life, and actually decreased number of ED visits and decreased health costs compared to patients not in this program. So they, these things work. I think in terms of bare bones, even if you, I think a lot of it can actually be done virtually, meaning like you don't have to like walk into clinic and see a gynecologist and a GI doctor and a urologist. It's just really not practical because not every single person needs every single resource. I think the bare bones is that if you see the gynecologist that has a ability to at least diagnose and triage these patients, you can then bring in those other specialists for the individual needs of that patient. I think the other bare bones item that is incredibly important is the patient education model. And the simplest thing is to have longer visits and educate patients individually. The more complex thing is to have monthly, bi-weekly sessions where patients can sign up and you just have this repetitive program that patients can come to. I think the other thing that I would say is absolutely critical is to have a network of physical therapists that specialize in female pelvic pain disorders. Um, There are very specialized PTs that need additional training beyond what you would get in sort of normal orthopedic physical therapy. For us, we, we have a big network like within our university, but because over half of our population of patients drives between two and four hours to come see us because we're sort of the um, referral place across our our province, yeah, mm-hmm. then, you know, we can't expect patients, you know, because PT needs to be done on a weekly basis. We can't expect them to come every week that far. So we have developed a network of physical therapists that, we, you know, so when a patient comes in with this big long list and say, all right, well, who's the PT that's closest to you? We can usually find somebody within 30 to 40 minutes for them. Some people will end up with surgery, mm-hmm. ultimately. Absolutely. I'm wondering how good is surgery mm-hmm. at improving pain mm-hmm. in people with chronic pain? Well, I mean, I think it depends on what surgery you're doing, right? So I mean, we know there's a lot of evidence to support surgical treatment of endometriosis. You know, it works in about 70% of women, at least temporarily, um, although those patients really have a relatively high risk of recurrence, and so post-operative medical suppression, you know, in general should be the gold standard. Hysterectomy can be helpful. It's definitely considered the absolute rest resort when other things aren't working. And the one thing that we had talked about is there are often more than one goal of hysterectomy. You know, these patients usually don't always just have pain. They have pain and abnormal bleeding. And so it's defining what the goals are for the surgery. Hysterectomy certainly can cure abnormal bleeding. But with regards to the pain, there's about a 25% risk of persistent pain or pain that's, you know, not entirely resolved after hysterectomy. So those those things all need to be considered. How about pain management around the time mm-hmm. of hysterectomy? Yeah. So we've all had patients who are having a hysterectomy for pelvic pain, mm-hmm. and then not surprisingly, postoperatively, they have severe pain. Yeah. Are there any strategies you yeah. employ in your analgesia to try and manage yeah. that factor for your patients? Yeah, so I, it depends on the actual surgery. Um, you know, one of the most helpful things that we know, I think that's basic to every gynecologist, is that minimally invasive approaches are associated with less pain than laparotomy. So at any point that we can, you know, offer a minimally invasive approach, that certainly is ideal. Uh, I think the other thing is actually setting 
education and expectations prior to surgery. That surgery is going, surgery is not entirely pain-free. And no matter what amount of opioid we give you, you will not be entirely pain-free. We want you to be comfortable enough that you can move and that you can function and that your bowel and bladder is working, but entirely pain-free is not going to be always feasible. In the pre-op period, we give patients um, Tylenol. Um, we give them uh, for lap for hysterectomy. I mean, we don't do this for laparoscopy. We premedicate with gabapentin. There's no standard dose. It's usually somewhere between six and nine hundred milligrams um, an hour prior to the procedure. Um, it's there's a lot of data that's looked at this across multiple different surgeries, and there's not a lot of agreement as to how much you need to give. Do you give it after the surgery or do you just give a single dose before? I would say in general in patients that have a chronic pain disorder or opioid dependence prior to surgery, probably continue it for a couple days after the surgery is reasonable. We don't do that for our opioid naive or non-chronic pain patients. We Mm. just give a single dose. But in the chronic pain or opioid dependent patients, we continue it maybe for a week after surgery. At the time of surgery, we give a lot of local anesthetic, paracervical blocks with anesthetics. The time of vaginal hysterectomy has been shown to be helpful and non-pharmacologic treatments afterwards like TENS units can sometimes be helpful. We try to not over-medicate. You know, sometimes we'll use muscle relaxants, but you really have to be cautious with combination medicines that can all be very sedating Mm -hmm. um, as well as some can be very constipating. So Um, And then, of course, education about how to use the opioids. So Tylenol and ibuprofen are the foundation of your pain control. Use the minimum amount of opioid and then gradually wean it as the days progress. Dr. Sunny, thank you so much for spending this time with me today. One final question. In your field, Mm -hmm. what do you think is the most important issue that needs to be addressed in the next five to ten years? I think that... As we're beginning to understand more about the physiology and the pathophysiology of chronic pain, we still don't have the ability to distinguish which factors are relevant in any given patient. And I think um, any chronic pain condition, but particularly pelvic pain and endometriosis, are highly heterogeneous populations where there are certainly some patients that um, really, the endometriosis is their only sort of, you know, what we call pain generator, their problem. And the other patients on the extreme end where it might be entirely irrelevant or one of many things that are causing pain. And we have very little ability at this point to distinguish these patients in that whole spectrum in the middle and identify which treatments will help which patients. And, you know, at this point, you know, we have some estimates, but we don't have very guided care based on the underlying pathophysiology of pain in any given patient. I think once we're able to do that, I think we can give better directed therapies, do the right medication for the right patient at the right time, do the right surgery for the right patient at the right time. At this point, it's not entirely the wild, wild west, but it's, you know, it's getting better, but we're still nowhere close to having very personalized mechanism-based, you know, treatment strategies. That is uh, exciting and inspiring (laughs) stuff. Well, thank you so much for your interest. I'm so, so honored and so glad to be part of this conversation and uh, just really exciting that um, to spread this this line of work and these ideas to other parts of the world. Thank you. Fabulous. Thanks for joining us on COG. My pleasure. That was Dr. Sawson Asani, a pelvic pain specialist and minimally invasive surgeon from the University of Michigan Monvoitlander Women's Hospital. Next up, Journal Club, where we discuss three recent publications on pelvic pain. Remember, you can get in touch with me at cogconversation at gmail.com or via our website, cog.podbean.com. You can find us on iTunes or our Facebook page, and please do drop us a rating on iTunes. We really enjoy seeing your reviews. So the first paper that caught my eye was, uh, was something that was in the American Journal, and it was published in January this year. And it's entitled Chronic Pelvic Pain in an Interdisciplinary Setting, a One-Year Prospective Cohort. And this came from the Department of Obstetrics and Gynae at the University of British Columbia. And the first author was Catherine Allaire. What this study highlighted was the problem that we alluded to at the introduction of this podcast. The chronic pelvic pain affects around 15% of women, depending on your definition. 
and presents a complex problem for gynaecologists due to its complex etiology involving multiple comorbidities. And like it or not, emergency departments have a four-hour rule to get patients in and out, and then they're often triaged to gynaecology when we know that there may be no underlying gynaecological problem to explain their pain. So this study was a prospective one-year cohort study. Their tertiary referral centre for pelvic pain and endometriosis and what they wanted to do was to describe trends and factors associated with chronic pelvic pain severity over a one-year prospective cohort with a focus on the role of comorbidities and they controlled at the beginning for baseline pain demographic factors and treatment effects. So their primary outcome was chronic pelvic pain severity in the last three months after the one-year follow-up. Uh, and their secondary outcomes were functional quality of life and physician or emergency room visits. So there were some subjective outcomes, which are really important in chronic pain, is how bad was the pain for the woman? And then the other outcomes they looked at were quality of life uh, and functionality. And then also the objective outcome of how many times is this person presenting to the emergency room over the course of the year. Uh, It was a really interesting study in that they've documented a multidisciplinary team approach. So the team members were an advanced trainee in minimally invasive surgery, and over 50% of the women in this study had endometriosis. One of the exclusion criteria was being postmenopausal or over the age of 50. So they were looking at a younger group of women with uh, chronic pelvic pain. Uh, They had a clinical fellow, a registered nurse, Uh, a physiotherapist with a special interest in pelvic pain and a clinical counsellor with a practice focus on women's reproductive health. And so the treatment approach of this multidisciplinary team included surgery, which was primarily minimally invasive surgery, such as a hysterectomy or oophorectomy or excision of endometriosis as required, medical management uh, like hormonal treatments, pain adjuvants, uh, and trigger point in- injections. And then interestingly, the adjunctive part of it uh, that we don't have in our standard gynae clinics was a standardised pain program. And that included a group pain workshop and then two individual physiotherapy visits and two individual counselling visits. And I think it's where we dig into what happened in the physio visits, um, things like calm breathing techniques, addressing fear of movement, helpful postural movement patterns, exercises to identify uh, and relax overactive muscle groups. And then when you look at the counselling visits of mindfulness-based strategies such as meditation, breathing, guided visualisation, these sort of adjunctive treatments were the additional things in addition to regular gynaecological management that these women had access to. That was interesting. And what was also very interesting to me was that the people who tended to catastrophize their pain tended to do worse. So the people that that were high catastrophized at the beginning of the study, that is that they exhibited catastrophizing behavior, which is rumination, magnification and helplessness. So that if people had those sorts of characteristics when they were describing their pain, and we've all been familiar with the patient who comes in who's sitting up in bed, well, seemingly, but says, I've got 10 out of 10 pain, that those sorts of patients tended to do worse in all treatment arms of the study. And they suggested that consideration should be given to stratifying pelvic pain patients by their catastrophizing level, because you're much more likely to be successful in managing these patients if they have lower catastrophizing levels compared to those that have high catastrophizing levels. And um, I guess... The, the sorts of patients who are high catastrophizers, they tend to do worse because if the patient believes that no treatment will help, then the patient will have less confidence in efficacy even before any treatment's been initiated. And so I think these women do need some sort of careful mental health assessment after we've, they've been through a diagnostic process so that we can actually try to elucidate the cause of their chronic pelvic pain. That should not include a laparoscopy every three to four months to exclude chronic endometriosis. That's what I loved about this paper is the workup of these patients was so comprehensive. So they used validated pain scales at the entry point uh, and at the 12-month mark. They used quality of life questionnaires. Um, they sought to establish comorbidities using the Rome 3 criteria for irritable bowel syndrome. 
painful bladder syndrome was diagnosed by criteria used by the American Neurological Association, uh, musculoskeletal dysfunction um, and abdominal wall pain diagnosed by positive Carnet test. So they did a really comprehensive workup of these patients. And before we get to the patients that the program didn't work for, I think we should talk about how well this program actually worked for lots of the women who were involved in it. So there was a significant reduction in chronic pelvic pain by uh, severity, by two points, with a p-value of less than 0.001. With regards to the proportion of women experiencing severe chronic pelvic pain, the proportion diminished uh, for women experiencing severe chronic pelvic pain, but increased for women experiencing none to mild chronic pelvic pain. And really interestingly, the program seemed effective for improving women's scores with regards to depression, anxiety, catastrophizing, irritable bowel syndrome, and painful bladder syndrome. And so this program is kind of outstanding in terms of reducing women's experience of chronic pain. Yeah, that's true. But there there were some limitations in the study. I mean, firstly, it wasn't um, a randomized trial, which um, but even so, subjective improvements in chronic pelvic pain um, are important for patients, certainly. Numbers of patients were also lost to follow-up, and those tended to be the younger women and, and also tended to be the women that had more depression and anxiety symptoms. And that means, or possibly means, that the improvements observed in the, in the one-year follow-up cohort may have been overestimated because um, they had about a 57% response rate at a year so it was 296 women out of 525 who were initially recruited into the study. And it's interesting, though, that the results have been similar to those that have been reported from other tertiary referral centres, but they mightn't be generalisable to community settings. Um, uh, and also, they said, it, it mightn't be generalisable to women who have a group of women who have lower rates of endometriosis, which was quite... It, despite my protestations about endometriosis was still quite a common finding in this study. Despite those limitations, this is some really exciting work in what works in pelvic pain. And I'm really pleased to see some positive research coming out to see how we can address this issue for women instead of just characterising things like history of sexual assault, catastrophizing, um, kind of things that maybe aren't that modifiable, but finding something that we can actually do uh, in a multidisciplinary sense, to, to help women improve their pain scores, improve their functionality, and improve their lives. And I, th- I think, too, we need to probably, maybe spend more time with these women. We need to do targeted examinations, you know, looking for their abdominal wall pain that might be associated with a neuroma from a, a scar because of previous surgery, looking for you know, musculoskeletal pain, looking for their irritable, irritable bowel syndrome or their painful bladder syndrome or whatever. And not just saying, we've got pelvic pain, let's, let's put you on a list and laparoscope you. I think we can do better than that. So the second study we're looking at in Journal Club this week is opioid prescribing patterns, patient use and post-operative pain after hysterectomy for benign indications. Uh, the lead author is Sorsa Asani um, and co-authors, and it was published in the Green Journal in December 2017. So Dr. Asani uh, was our guest on COG this month. And so this paper looks at outpatient opioid use after hysterectomy. Part of the motivation for the study is the push in the US at the moment. In 2016, the CDCP uh, described opioid misuse as one of the top five public health priorities. And as a result of that, surgeons particularly are looking very closely at their opioid prescription. Uh, So this was a prospective quality initiative study. Women who were having hysterectomy for benign non-obstetric indication at a university hospital from August 2015 to December 2015, there were about 100 women involved. Um, And they looked at the total opioid prescribed uh, over the initial two weeks post-op and the amount consumed. And then they also looked at measures of daily pain severity for 14 days after hysterectomy using both a phone survey and a daily pain diary that participants were asked to fill out. The most striking thing about this study for me, which I found very interesting, was that before the women underwent hysterectomy, they all completed a thing called a fibromyalgia survey, which is a validated measure of centralised pain. And it was interesting that the preoperative fibromyalgia score overall body pain, preoperative opioid use, 
prior endometriosis and abdominal hysterectomy compared with laparoscopic hysterectomy were significant predictors of the amount of opioids that people might use after hysterectomy. So the highest tertile of fibromyalgia survey score was associated with the greatest daily opioid consumption. So these were the secondary outcomes we're talking about, and it is a really fascinating part of Dr. Asani's work correlating centralised pain syndrome and this fibromyalgia score. But every one-point increase in your fibromyalgia score was associated with 30.8 more oral morphine equivalents used in the two weeks. So an oral morphine equivalent is like a milligram of endone, basically. And so for every one-point increase in your fibromyalgia score, you were more likely to use just over 30 milligrams more of oral morphine, which is kind of astounding that we have the tools and I guess it's the was the underlying thrust of uh, the argument of this paper is that we should be moving away from a one-size-fits-all approach to analgesia for women postoperatively. Some tools are being developed that we can predict who's going to need lots of pain relief and who isn't, and for which women opioid pain relief is going to be useful, and for which women it may actually have no impact on their postoperative pain. Yeah, it was interesting that that when they looked at what the gynecologists prescribed um, after the hysterectomy, they prescribed approximately twice the amount of opioids that the average patient would use after a hysterectomy. And they said that the reasons for the surgeons prescribing excess opioids were probably multifactorial, and related to a lack of evidence-based guidelines, as Rachel said, we, we have a one a sort of a one-size-fits-all for this sort of thing, a desire to improve patient satisfaction, and also to, um, perhaps most tellingly, reduce post-operative opioid refill prescription requests. So look, there are some issues with this study. Uh, it's small, there are only 100 patients Um, And it wasn't specific to the mode of hysterectomy, so only about 15%. So a a small number of the hysterectomies were done by the abdominal mode. It did rely on self-reported measures, and there was a pretty significant loss to follow-up with respect to the pain diaries. 60% of women returned their pain diaries, but nearly 90% of women responded to the phone survey, which is an excellent response rate. I would really love to see a similar study published Uh, on an Australian population um, because I think it would be really interesting to compare what our doctor's prescribing habits are like after hysterectomy and also to compare our patient's response to opioid analgesia. The the thing that I like the most about it is that novel analysis of centralised pain as a predictor of an individual's post-operative opioid use and how she'll ultimately go post-operatively And the other thing I think this study highlighted for me was that the opioid epidemic is not just in America, it's here in Australia. And I think that we as responsible clinicians have to be mindful of that and be careful in in our prescribing habits. Try and tailor our medication requirements of our patients such that they, they only get the amount of medication that they use. They don't have stuff lying around the house that they can use, you know, in four months' time for a headache or whatever but um, that we're much more careful in prescribing these really quite dangerous drugs. The third study is a bit of fun. It's the effects of yogic intervention on pain scores and quality of life in females with chronic pelvic pain. The author is Rahil Saxena and colleagues from the International Journal of Yoga, not a journal we usually discuss on Journal Club. It was published between January and April 2017, And we've selected this article today because we're really trying to take a what works approach to pelvic pain. Mm. And this is a really interesting little paper published in the International Journal of Yoga. So this is a follow-up randomized case control study. There were 30 women in each arm and they were randomized to analgesics, which was usually NSAIDs, or analgesics or standard care, which was analgesics and a yogic intervention. Um, So the yogic intervention was quite significant. Uh, It involved deep breathing, some om chanting, some asana, which is basically the yoga movements, pranayama, which is breathing exercises and relaxation. So anyone who's been to a yoga class knows that's about the one-hour yoga session that you do. And the women did this yogic intervention five times a week for eight weeks under an experienced teacher's supervision. 
Their pain scores were assessed using a visual analog score uh, and also a quality of life assessment was done using the WHO quality of life brief questionnaire. This study didn't quite have the rigour of the previous prospective uh, cohort study that we talked about. Um, there are a few issues. The subjects weren't ma- were matched for age, but they weren't matched for any other demographic characteristics. Um, the diagnosis of their pathology wasn't that strict. Um, they were just chronic pain patients. But interestingly, while the visual analog scores for pain were similar at the outset of the study between group one and group two. At the completion of the eight-week program, the group undergoing the yogic intervention had a significant reduction in their um, visual analog scores for pain. I thought it was great in the sense that they, they did yoga for eight weeks and then there was a significant improvement in their quality of life and, and a reduction in their pain scores. What was frightening from the study when I read it was they said the prevalence of chronic pelvic pain varies from 5.2% of women in India to uh, nearly 9% in Pakistan and 43% in Thailand, which sounds extraordinary. But I guess this really shows the importance of, and this is emerging in lots of other areas of clinical practice, of physical therapies, like there's some sort of you know exercise, breathing, relaxation, all these sorts of therapies that we can be a bit disparaging about as being touchy-feely and, and not validated. But when, when we're faced with the problem that we talked about in the previous paper with the opioid epidemic, yoga seems a pretty benign intervention. And who can, who can underestimate the, the socialising benefits of yoga actually having to get out, commit to a class, go to a class, get the gear to go, meet up with people, have a coffee afterwards, just rejoin society. Those sorts of things might have something to do with the reduction in people's pain scores, just having a support group, having sympathetic ears, having, I guess it's part of the holistic care that we can provide to our patients that we sometimes don't have quite the time to do. So uh, whilst I, I must confess to you, never having read anything else in the International Journal of Yoga, perhaps I need to and um, get myself a mat and get in the downward dog position and um, improve my quality of life. So, look, I'd just really like to see a study like this done with the same kind of diagnostic rigour as what was applied in the previous study. So uh, I'd love to see a yoga study with uh, assessment of irritable bowel syndrome, painful bladder syndrome, depression and anxiety scores and see what patterns we get in these validated measures. I wonder about the generalizability insofar as how achievable is five hour long sessions per week really for most people. But then on the other side, I'd love to see what's the minimum dose. Do Mm. you need to do five hour long sessions or can you do 15 minutes a day and will that improve your quality of life? So I think it's an exciting space and I'm happy to be looking a little bit outside the box of Uh, medication and surgery to try and see what works in in treating women with chronic pelvic pain. Particularly when we know that the management of chronic pelvic pain is currently flawed. We're not doing well. We know that the opioid epidemic is a problem. We know that people with chronic pelvic pain are often misdiagnosed. In summary, what we would again put out a plea for is that these women are taken seriously, that we really give some thought to the configuration of our services to really look at how best we can utilise an interdisciplinary team to look after these women. So I think we have to do better than we're currently doing in managing these women. Yeah, and hopefully our chat with Dr Asadi has helped to throw a little bit of light on how to approach uh, these women and some simple steps we can take to set up multidisciplinary pain clinics, which, as the evidence would suggest, have the best success of anything we know so far in treating chronic pelvic pain. What a great episode. Thanks for joining me on COG10. So next month we're catching up with Deborah Wickman from Phoenix, Arizona, who's going to talk to us about great sex. Can you imagine such a thing? Rachel talked to her at the ACOG meeting um, again, and um, so I'm very interested to uh, listen to this as she's not yet released it for my um, oral content. I don't know if you can cope, Ted. I really enjoyed my chat with Deborah. She gave a great presentation at the Congress and she really changed my views about my role as a gynaecologist in helping women with sexual dysfunction. It was really enlightening. So I'm excited to bring it to you next month. 
But in the meantime, if you have any queries, questions, smart remarks, please shoot us an email on cogconversation at gmail.com or catch up with us on our website, cog.podbean.com. And we're also on iTunes, Conversations in Obstetrics and Gynecology. Thanks for joining us on COG. Okay, we'll talk to you next time. Bye.